like I haven't seen you guys since last decade. I had to get that one out of the way, okay? I just had to. I had to. I had to. It's good to see you guys this morning. Happy New Year. I hope you guys had a wonderful, wonderful break. Um, if you had a break, I hope you had a wonderful day at least on New Year's Day. Um, so by way of introduction, if you haven't met me, I'm Pastor Brandt. I'm the youth and young adults pastor here. Uh, and since Pastor Jeff is away, that means I get to preach as long as I want. So um, we might be here till evening. Just kidding. No, this, this actually, though, might be one of the most convicting and personally challenging messages that I have preached in a long time. Uh, so my intent this morning is not to preach from a position of having it figured out, but from a position of being a fellow traveler on the same journey as you as we follow Jesus together. Now, if you were here last week, we started talking about this whole idea of righteousness. This whole idea of righteousness, of being in right relationship. Right? Righteousness simply at its basic level is a relational term and it means to be in a right relationship. And a lot of times, appropriately, we apply that to our relationship with God, but it simply means to be in right relationship. And so we've been looking at what it means to be in right relationship with God and what that means for us as we live out right relationships with other people uh, as we're in this series called How to Always Be Right. How to Always Be Right. And I confess confess that that is a very appealing title for me personally, uh, because I would love to always be right. But here's the truth, uh, that I, I, I really believe this, that when it comes to the most significant relationships in your life, primarily the relationship that you have with God, the relationship that you have with other people, um, I believe it's possible to always, al- always be right. Now, if you were here last week, like I said, we started talking about this concept of righteousness, but we started talking about a passage that we find at the end of Luke chapter 10. At the end of Luke chapter 10, where Jesus encounters Mary and Martha, and, and, and they're torn. They're torn between doing things for Jesus, for the Messiah, the, the creator of everything who's sitting in their living room. They're torn between doing stuff for him and simply being with him. And that is how we ended up last weekend. So before we jump in any further, I would be remiss if we did not ask the Lord himself to be present with us today as we, as we look into his word. Because I really believe this. I believe this with all my heart. You can't know God apart from his self-revelation to you. You can't. And, and that is what we are here for. You're not here to hear some cunning preacher uh, spin words together that make you feel good. You're here to hear from God. And so that is what we're going to seek this morning. So if, you, uh, if, you, if you're with me in spirit, would you bow your heads and we're going to seek the Lord together here. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that, that it would not be words that we just hear. It would not be just stories that we come to listen to. But God, I pray that you would supernaturally, divinely intervene in the next few moments that we have together and that you would speak to our hearts. I pray for my lips that, as imperfect as they are, that you would speak through them your divine grace and truth. I pray that um, my heart will be clear to hear and speak what you are saying to your people this morning. And I pray that we would be changed as we look into your perfect word this morning. Amen. So, Jesus is with Mary and Martha, and Jesus says that Mary, not Martha, Mary has chosen the good portion. That's what we looked at last week. This the one thing that is necessary in life is to receive this right relationship with Jesus, which is the only thing that makes you right with God. Not your striving, not your performance, not anything that you do on the outside that is religiously impressive. That isn't what makes you right with God. It is your right relationship with Jesus alone. And out of this, out of this, we begin to see Mary's life get transformed. It, it's the relationship that she has with Jesus that is the thing that is transformational. And here's what Mary realized, that she could be right with God forever simply by receiving this right relationship with Jesus. And this will not be taken away. That's what Jesus says, this relationship with God will not be taken away. The free gift of righteousness is based entirely, entirely, entirely on what Jesus has already done done. 
It has nothing to do with your performance. It has nothing to do with your religious accolades. It has nothing to do with how impressive your church attendance is. This relationship with God is based entirely on what Jesus has done and not what you have to do. In Jesus, we have unlimited access to God. But the interesting thing about this passage that we looked at last week is it follows directly on the heels of an interaction that Jesus has with a particular lawyer. Now, we're not talking about um, a defense attorney, Kevin. We're not talking about um, that kind of a lawyer. We're talking about a, 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 a lawyer of the Old Testament law, a religious genius. This guy had the Bible memorized backwards and forwards. He was an expert in Old Testament law. And Jesus has this interaction with him. And it is the thing that happens earlier in the day before Jesus gets to Mary and Martha's house. Now, I have to confess. I've read these two passages together hundreds of times. I've never actually, in my brain, associated them as being related. But the interesting thing that I notice as I begin to, and we're going to unpack this this morning, the interesting thing that I notice is both of them point to two sides of the same coin of righteousness. Being right with God and being right with mankind. And so Jesus says to Mary, man, this is the thing. This is the thing that cannot be taken away. Your right relationship with God. When you're right with Jesus, you will be right with God. And out of this, what we're going to look at this morning, I believe that these two passages are divinely connected because out of this flows a right relationship with Jesus, which is something that Jesus had actually talked about earlier that day. Um, so, if you're really ambitious, we're, we're going to get there in a minute, but if you're ambitious, you can start turning to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Um, as, you're turning there, as you're turning there, here's what I really believe is going to happen this morning. If, you, if your heart is soft to what the Lord is saying to you this morning, not, not the person next to you, but if you hear what God is saying to you, I, I believe this, that it will unlock an infinite potential in your life to display the glory of God and woo a lost and dying world back into the loving arms of the Savior who came to seek and save the lost. I really believe that if you hear what God is saying to you this morning through his word, that you're going to fall so much in love with Jesus that you're going to have a desire to be with Jesus. And out of this relationship that you have with Jesus, out of this security and intimacy that you have, you're going to be able to love everybody without fear without hesitation, without pretense, without holding back. You're going to be so close to Jesus that everybody who's in the sphere of your connection is going to be able to see and hear and feel the love of God that is just overflowing out of your life. I believe this, that that will be true of you. If you hear what God is saying and you allow him to work in your heart to the point that you're so in love with Jesus that you're hanging on every word and you're staying close to him, on a daily basis. So I want to put that there off the bat. It might seem impossible to love everybody, but I really believe that if, I think this is what the Word of God is going to be saying this morning, is that if you're living out of the abundance of your relationship with God, it will be so natural that it just kind of overflows. You are a finite human being. You cannot possibly contain infinite love and infinite grace. If you are daily in the path of receiving infinite love and infinite grace, it's just going to overflow. It'll be so natural. It just, it just, it's kind of It'll be just what you do. It'll just be so basic to being human that it it just kind of overflows to the other people around you in your sphere of connection. So what I want to talk about today is this concept of how to be right with everyone. How to be right with everyone. That's the title of my message this morning. Because I believe you can be truly, you truly can be right with everybody if you live out of the abundance of your relationship with God. If you live out of your righteousness before God. Now, just by way of context, this guy is about to ask Jesus a question that is so basic to any sort of religious discussion. How do I inherit eternal life? That's, that's what the discussion will be framed in, is this question. How do I get to heaven? How do I inherit eternal life? And although the question is probably basic and sincere, it nevertheless, I believe, reveals an innate desire inside of this religious lawyer, an innate desire for undeserved glory for himself. It's, it, it doesn't reveal his, his foolishness or stupidity because he knows. He is smart. He's a genius. This guy knows everything that there is to know when it comes to Bible knowledge. It's not that he doesn't have an answer, but I think what it does is it reveals an innate desire for 
undeserved praise and glory for himself. And we're going to look at this moment, but Jesus sees right through him. He sees a stinginess in his willingness to truly fulfill God's commands in loving his neighbor. And so Jesus' line of questioning is going to lead this guy to a point of recognizing a life of righteousness, right standing before God that leads to right living before your neighbor. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 10, I'd invite you to stand up with me. We're going to read this text of Scripture together on the screen. I confess that there is an ambitious 13 verses we're going to read together. Um, I'd encourage you to read it out of your own Bible. If you don't have it, we're going to have it up here on the screen as well. And it goes like this. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil on wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Well done. You can sit down. You go and do likewise. I, I love how Jesus responds to this Bible expert. I love it. Jesus' question reveals that the answer, get this, the answer to this question is found in the Old Testament. Now, contrary to what many Christians believe or want to affirm, um, uh, Jesus clinged to the Old Testament. He loved the Old Testament. He affirmed the law, and he fulfilled it. And, and, G- and to Jesus, the teaching of the law, it was not oppressive. In fact, it was very liberating. According to Jesus, the way to inherit eternal life, guess where it's found? He points straight to the Old Testament. And obviously, yeah, he reveals it and fulfills it and points to a new covenant in the New Testament. But like, Jesus says, how do, you, how, how do you find the answer to eternal life? And, and he points to the Old Testament. He, I love this. Check this out. When Jesus wants to point to the fulfillment of all that God commands of us, he points to Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. Anyone have those passages memorized? Yeah, I don't either. Um, but, but in previous encounters, I mean, think about this. Jesus has been asked this question before. It's not a new question to Jesus. And each time, the discussion goes back to these two verses, Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. Which, if you think about it, you kind of have to look for them. They're not in the Big Ten, right? They're not in the Ten Commandments. They're not in some of the main passages. Now, obviously, Deuteronomy 6 is a very common passage for uh, Jews. It's called the Shema. You, uh, Hear, O Israel, our Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, that was quoted constantly. So this, this that was an easy answer. But then, this guy pulls a rabbit out of the hat. I mean, where... When you look at something that's almost equivalent to loving God with everything you have, this guy goes to the middle of the book of Leviticus and frankly to the middle of the chapter and just kind of to the middle of the verse. Because this chapter is about a lot of different things. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people. But, and here you go, Jesus and this lawyer, they both recognize this. This is the 
number two most important commandment in the entire Old Testament. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I am the Lord. So Jesus has been asked this question before, and he points to these two verses regularly. But this time it's different. Jesus turns the question back on this biblical expert. And he nails it verbatim. He too recalls from memory. He didn't pull out a scroll. He didn't whip out his Bible app. He didn't go to Google. Like this was on the hard drive. This was just, he knew it off the top of his head. He pulls from memory these two verses. Here's the point. It wasn't a lack of information. It was not a lack of insight that this religious expert was possessing. In his answer, obviously, he gets it. And he doesn't have any issues with a love for God. But the interesting thing that, that happens here is when the idea, the concept of loving your neighbor as yourself comes up, this is where he starts to squirm. Okay? As we read through the text, this is where he gets uncomfortable, which is interesting. This is a man who, of all people, should espouse the concept of loving your neighbor as yourself. You have the Bible memorized? This should be basic. Kind of reminds me of, of a study, it's commonly referred to as the Good Samaritan study, earlier in the 1970s, almost 50 years ago now, um, on the campus of Princeton University, two behavioral scientists by the names of John Darley and Daniel Badson were interested and they were studying the psychology of pro-social behavior. In other words, why do people do good things for others? And so basically what they wanted to do was, on the campus, they wanted to study not just any Princeton student, but Princeton theological students. Translation, people who were studying to be pastors and theologians and priests. People who, who wanted to have most of this on their hard drive. And so what they would do over the course of a few days in the fall is they, they took a number, a collection of students, and they all brought them into a research room in one particular building on campus. And, and they had them answer a bunch of questions, and they had them uh, discuss why it is that you want to serve God. Why do you want to study to be what you're becoming? Is it for intrinsic reasons? Like, um, I have an internal desire to do good in the world. Or is it for external, extrinsic reasons? I, I want to make it into heaven. So they were trying to figure this out. And so what they did was they, they conducted an experiment. They set up a situation. They said, okay, here's what we're going to have you do. We're going to have you prepare a mini-sermon, a devotional on this text, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The parable of the Good Samaritan. That's the content of what you're going to be teaching about tomorrow. All right, so the next day they had them come back in and they had them say, okay, so here's what's going to happen. You're going to do this and you're going to go over to that building, which was the next building over. And there was like an alleyway in between that they had to walk through to get to that other building. You're going to go over to that building and you're going to deliver your message to a professor over there. Now here's where the situation got interesting. They kind of had it rigged. What they did was, by random chance, they determined um, some of the students were going to have a lot of time to get there. They told them, you're in no rush. You know, you don't even need to worry about rushing right now. It's gonna, you're, you're early. Don't worry about being in a hurry. Some students were told, you're on time, but you probably should leave just so that you're not late. And then other students were told, you are so late. You need to rush. You need to get there right now because you're already late. And what they were trying to determine was, is it going to be external motivating factors that's going to lead to somebody's helping somebody else, or is it going to be an internal motivating factor? Because here's what happened. They had another student play very sick and, and, and in need of a lot of medical attention. They made him look real bad, and he was laying across the alley. And here's where it got interesting, is the alley was four feet wide. So in order to get to where you are going to preach about the Good Samaritan, you, if you are going to not help this person, you literally had to step over him to get there. Okay? Here's what they found. 60% of the students studied did not help this helpless person, but stepped over him on their way to, get, to preach about the Good Samaritan. And here's where it's getting interesting. When of the students who were in a hurry, who were rushed, only 10% of them helped this fellow student who was in need. And ironically, they found that 
the person in the hurry was less likely to help people, even if he was going to speak on the Good Samaritan. Um, in other words, simply knowing something doesn't always translate to acting on it. Why do I mention this? Because human hearts are at their core very selfish. I'm very selfish. You're very selfish. And this is what we notice about the expert in the law who approaches Jesus, is that this exact discomfort with being bothered by people. <laughs> right? Like, ugh, people. Like, this would be so much easier if it was just me and God. This exact discomfort with bo- being bothered by people despite his, 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 his impressive knowledge of God. Here's the thing. It's, it's one thing to know about God. It's an entirely different thing to know God. It's one thing to know about God. It's another thing to know about God and allow this eternally secure and intimate relationship to lead into life. This guy had issues when it came to loving his neighbor as himself. Why? Because as a Jew, especially as a, as a, a scholarly Jew, you were taught your entire life that all you had to do was love other Jews. You didn't have to love Samaritans. You didn't have to love Gentiles, basically non-Jewish people. In fact, there was even uh, some Jews who said, I don't even have to love every Jew. I only have to love the Jews who live up to the standards I live up to. And Jesus says in response, what, is, what does the law actually say about how to interrogate your life? He said, well, okay, you love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, okay, you got the answer right. Do what you just said. But, but it wasn't enough for, for this guy. It wasn't enough. Why? Check out verse 29. 29. But he, desiring justify himself, to, to prove himself to be righteous, to, to declare him righteous, to position himself in a place of right standing. But he desiring to justify himself, what does he do? He wants to limit the scope of his responsibility. He's not, he's not trying to increase the capacity inside of himself to join God's worldwide mission to reach all mankind with his unnatural love. No, no, no. He essentially asks, and don't miss this, what, is the, what are the limits of my responsibility to love other people? Who is my neighbor? Translation, at what point have I done enough? That's where his question is going. That's where he's going. Implied in the tone of this question is a statement that sounds a lot like this. I want to be known for being righteous while still doing the bare minimum. Oh God, help us. Because this don't sound unfamiliar. Hey world, look at me. I'm righteous. Look at my Bible highlights. Check out my perfect church attendance. I even got my family to church on time this morning. Right? I deserve a gold star for that. I tithe. You don't believe me about all these things? Check out my Instagram. I post about my daily devotions every single morning. I share Christian links on Facebook every single day. I stand for that one issue, and I stand hard, and I I look down on people who don't stand as hard for that one issue as I do, right? I have Christian bumper stickers. Well, I have a whole car full of stickers that point about Jesus and talk about Jesus and oh yeah well 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 I I I I I'm righteous look at me but he wanting to justify himself before others tried to limit the scope of his responsibility by saying at what point have I done enough I can just imagine the 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 strain that comes out of a heart condition like this. Just in the, in the quiet moments of his soul, in the recesses of his mind, how he must be feeling. Man, following God is exhausting. I don't know how much longer I can keep this up. Is anyone even noticing how righteous I am? Jesus is saying, you've, you've missed the point. Oh, how badly you have missed it. 
It's not actually about figuring out who your neighbor is. What about asking God and looking to God and asking what kind of neighbor that your relationship with him is leading you to be? So Jesus illustrates a point. A man was going down from Jericho to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And these two very religious people walk right past him. Guy who was a priest, he spoke for God to man, worked in the temple, a Levite, very religious person, not a priest, but always in the temple. This man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho also likely was a very high up Jew because most of Jericho was inhabited by priests and Levites and scribes and people who worked in the temple. And they would often have to travel back to Jerusalem because obviously it's the hub of religious activity. That's where the, the, the temple of God was. And so this was a common trip. And so this guy was likely a very scholarly Jew. But by misfortune, he's traveling by himself. And a group of thugs jump out and beat the crap out of him and leave him, take all his clothes off of him and leave him, and people think he's dead. Like, people left him for dead. You would have walked by and gone, like, I think that guy's dead. Most people who traveled that traveled in groups so that they would discourage being jumped by thugs and thieves and, and robbers. Um, this guy is left in a condition where his life expectancy is very low, let alone the elements preying on him getting jumped again. Like this, especially if nothing even happens, he's not on a path towards health. He's on a path towards unhealth. He's left for dead. And then Jesus says something that really turns the screws. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion and he went to him, bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two full days wages, two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper and said, you know what, take care of him and if you spend even more than that, I'll, I'll repay you. Here's a blank check. I want to stop right there. This is an interesting scenario. Because if you, if you heard a story like this, if you read a news article like this today, can you imagine the comment section? Right? Okay, so here's, the, here's, the, here's the, the story. Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and he stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The rest of the story leads to this, this guy helping him and, and serving him and, and taking care of his needs. And here's what I imagine. Might actually, in American Christianity... You might see some comments like this. This man on the side of the road, he should have known better than to walk alone where the thieves are hanging out. I mean, everyone knows that, that Jerusalem sits up on a mountain, so no one always, so, so one always goes down from Jerusalem no matter which direction he takes. That's, that's geographical basic information, and everyone knows that on that road down, thugs hang out in the mountains and rocks and deserts. People know that. This was a dumb move. Or maybe another comment, this man should have demonstrated better stewardship with the resources that God had blessed him with and should have used wisdom and better life choices. It's this guy's fault he got jumped. Serving him, paying for his medical attention, I mean, isn't that just enabling him to do it again without ever learning from his mistakes? That's not good stewardship. The priest, the Levite, they would have defiled themselves by touching somebody who looked like they were dead. That was a smart call on the behalf of those pastors. Good job. Besides, don't religious people have more important things to get at at the present moment? I mean, think about it. Helping one person with their physical needs would have caused him to delay in helping hundreds with their spiritual needs. Clearly, this can't be a good decision for a spiritual leader of such high standing. The sad thing is I can imagine that conversation happening without even fabricating it. But maybe Jesus is onto something. Maybe the wisest use of this guy's time and possession was to invest it in somebody in need of God's unnatural love and mercy. 
but a Samaritan. Whoa. This is where the story heats up. This is where the heat is cranked up. The crowd is starting to feel it. The term Samaritan, this is an emphatic position in this text. Jesus deliberately chooses an outsider, a hated one as that, for his hero to indicate that being a neighbor, it's, it's not a matter of preference or nationality or race. Mutual hatred of the Jews and the Samaritans is obvious in the New Testament, and I wish I could unpack this more, but, but so great was the, the hostility between Jews and Samaritans, Jesus' opponents could think of nothing worse to call him than to say, this is John chapter 8, verse 48, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and equally so demon-possessed? <clears throat> Vitriol, just uh, fuel in their rage against Samaritans. Like, this is a hot, hot, hot conflict. There is absolutely no shred of goodwill when you use the word Samaritan. Jesus, a very notable Jew at this point, says a Samaritan, Samaritan. The crowd starts to heat up at this mention, and here's where the heat is turned to Conviction, very quickly, what Jesus says next. The Samaritan, what did he do? He took pity on him. He had compassion. He was moved in compassion. And this internal experience of pity and compassion led this human being to the external action of putting the man on his donkey, taking him to a hotel, paying for all his medical and lodging expenses with a blank check. This guy put his money where his heart, his loving, merciful heart actually was. Wait, what? What? Why? This has got to be the question that is begged by the end of this, 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 this parable. This crowd is beginning to feel the heat of what Jesus is saying. Why on planet earth would a Samaritan help someone, someone so, so, so repulsive and according to Jews so spiritually backwards and culturally disregarded, why would this be the guy that Jesus selects as his hero? And why would he show this kind of unnatural love to a Jew of all people? So while the question is still burning, Jesus turns the question and says, who do you say of these three was the neighbor? In other words, which person, the pastor, the really religious guy, or the morally questionable man proved to be the neighbor? Who was the one who demonstrated neighborliness? Who, who lived in right standing before other people? Who, who was righteous? Which person demonstrated righteousness with how he lived? So Jesus is asking, and no one wants to answer the question. Notice the direct absence of the answer, the Samaritan. The guy doesn't even say the word. He just says, the one who showed mercy. The point of this question was not to make the lawyer feel stupid. He wasn't. He was very, very smart. It was to challenge his preconceived and conceited notion that God only cares about people who have lived up to his high standard of righteousness and people who look like that. On the other side of Jesus' question is an implication that God... His intention is for those who are righteous to be in the habit of demonstrating his unnatural love to literally everyone, even those who can't repay them or ever hope to live up to such a high standard. God's intention is that those who are righteous, that they will demonstrate God's unnatural love to everyone. Here's the point. When you're living out of the abundance of your right relationship with God, it will be so natural just to come out. Other people, they're going to hear about it. They're going to see it. They're going to, they're going to feel it in the way that you live, in the way that you love. You can truly be right with everyone when you live out of your righteousness with God. Jesus is telling the lawyer here, and here's, here's the, the main chunk of truth that I'm getting out of this. Jesus is telling the lawyer, and those listening in, that on top of loving God enduringly, intellectually, wholeheartedly, what is required to inherit eternal life, right? That's receiving this right relationship with God. What is required to inherit eternal life 
will naturally lead him to love his neighbor compassionately by showing mercy to his neighbor who is literally anyone he comes in contact with. You can't separate the two. They go together. They're two sides of the same coin. Receive a right relationship with God. Allow that God's infinite love to overflow every single part of you. And in turn, it's going to impact every single person you interact with. It's just, you, you are a finite vessel, and, and to receive infinite love, and re- receive infinite relationship, and receive infinite grace, and receive infinite mercy, you can't hold it in. God's love comes out. It just does. It's so natural. It's just, it's how it works. To put it simply, unnatural love is the natural movement of the righteous. Unnatural love. Love, love that doesn't come from you, that's not natural to you, love that is poured into you, it's a natural movement. Why? Because it works inside of you, it's an inside-out interaction, it begins to change you, and you are so finite, you can't hold it all in. You, you receive the infinite love of God and it just naturally comes out. Unnatural love is just the natural movement of those who have received righteousness from God and thus are now recipients of God's infinite grace and mercy. When you've received this right relationship with God, it's just so natural it comes out. Unnatural love is the natural movement of the righteous. You want to be right towards everyone? You want to always get it right with everybody? <laughs> Adopt the habit of viewing other people as fellow beggars in need of God's mercy, co-recipients of God's love, and, and then act accordingly. So I read this text and I study what Jesus is saying here and I observe a couple things. There's a couple things that if you want to, if you want to be right with everyone, If you want to live out righteousness before every single person that you come in contact with, here's a couple things I've observed from this text. Number one, it's one thing to have an answer about eternal life. It's another thing to have eternal life. It's one thing to know the right answer in your head. There's a big difference, though, between that and the lived reality of allowing that truth to affect you on the deepest level to the point that it overflows your life. And changes the people around you. Here's here's an interesting thing. Like I said, this question, how do I inherit eternal life, has been asked to Jesus before. In fact, uh, Mark and Matthew record Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. Another very notable person. He asked the same question. Jesus asked the same question back. What does the law say? And you know what this answer is that he gives? He lists all the commandments. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. And he says, all of these I've kept since my youth. But then, this happens with this religious expert. Jesus asks him, what does the law say? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you nailed it. Verbatim, do this and you'll live. So I wonder... Between the guy who knows the law backwards and forwards to the point of adjudicating it and teaching it, from that point to those who have heard it on the street level, what went wrong? Why did it start out with, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and love your neighbor as yourself, and somehow it got heard as, keep the whole law? What happened? What was lost in translation? How could something so simple be turned into so so complicated, so obscured by standards and rules and, and hundreds of laws? Here's what I think. This is what I've learned in, I've noticed this, I, I, in the last four and a half years, I, I totaled this up oh, a few weeks ago. I've preached over 500 sermons. Um, and this is what I've noticed between preaching up here and preaching to our students multiple times a week, I have noticed this. The people will hardly ever remember what you say. They will always, always remember how you make them feel. Think back about the teachers that you had when you were younger or, or some powerful church services you've been a part of. the impression that everyone was getting was that if your ability to keep the laws, 
and live up to all of these standards isn't as good as the Pharisees, then maybe, maybe your religious zeal just isn't strong enough. Maybe you're just not right in the eyes of God. And, and as a result, you don't belong in our community. As a result... You have people literally excusing their unloving and proud and shame-casting behavior with their high moral standards and their incredibly disciplined capacity to keep them. So the more rules that you could keep, the more love that you received. Can I talk about exhausting? The problem wasn't that these teachers of the law were incorrect in the content of what they were teaching, but that they were enabling a, a system of shame and pride and judgment based on their loveless lifestyle. And instead of loving others like themselves, they really thrived at holding others at an arm's distance until they could live up to the same kind of standard, which made them feel really, really good. But Jesus, Jesus has strong words, has strong words to say to them. He says this in, in Matthew chapter 23. The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat so so do and observe what they tell you, but not the works that they do. Do what they say. It's right. Don't do what they do. It's wrong. They, they preach and they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all of these deeds to be seen by others. What's their motivation? It's not love. Verse 11, the greatest among you, however, shall be your servant. Your motivation should be love. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But woe, this is where Jesus gets real passionate. And I think it's appropriate. So just, if you don't want something loud, cover your ears. Feel this. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. When you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you're all talking about the commands of God and the truth of God, and you don't live with love, you're shutting people out of heaven. That is the effect of your lifestyle. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't you dare, don't you dare miss this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and out of the overflow of that. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's so natural. It just comes out. Don't you dare miss that. That is how people know what it looks like to love God. And this religious expert who'd probably never felt spiritually insufficient in his life begins to feel the hate of this impossibly high standard. How can I possibly generate that kind of lifestyle on my own? Which leads me to my second point. That loving everybody doesn't start with trying really hard to love everybody. You, you will never get to a point where you just have the moral resolution, the just incredible discipline to turn your emotions to such a point that everybody seems lovable to you. There will always be somebody beyond the strength of your moral resolution there will always be somebody who, in your opinion, is unlovable. Now consider this fictional character in Jesus' parable, the Good Samaritan, right? This is how Jesus describes to this lawyer, this guy who knows the Bible back and forward, this is how Jesus describes to him, this is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the kind of lifestyle that lives out of righteousness with God. This is, this is a guy who's going to inherit eternal life, and he lives accordingly. Now, obviously, he's a fictional character, product of Jesus' masterful storytelling, but we can assume that basically for Jesus, this is the kind of guy who will inherit eternal life. That's why he uses him as an example. This is what it means to live out everything I just said and thus experience what I've promised. This is the pattern of what it looks like. In other words, we can retroactively look back and understand that this Samaritan had the righteousness of God applied to his account. He was right with God. And as such, we know he had the Holy Spirit living on the inside of him. 
And so when, when the, the text says that he had compassion, he took pity on, the, the, the word in the original language can be translated to be moved in the inward parts. There was an internal movement going on, moved with compassion to take pity on somebody, to have one's heart go out to somebody. These, these, are, these are movement, directional terms. It's, it, it's, it's an emotion, but that's applied to a particular direction. There's something on the inside of him that is so compulsive that moves him into action. In other words, because of this this absolutely intimate and secure relationship that he has with God to the point that God and his love are literally on the inside of him. He moves just and just so, so naturally in love to catch this everyone. Now, why do I make the claim that this guy would move in love to everyone? Because the last person on the planet that this guy would ever consider moving in love towards is a Jew. Someone who treated him with such contempt. They hated each other. So when the Samaritan overflows in love to this repulsive Jew, honestly, a Jew that's even repulsive to his own people, we can be sure that God's colorblind, boundary-crossing, hate-forgiving, countercultural, unnatural love was coursing through his veins, moving him in a compassionate love to everyone with whom God grants him an interaction. That's what Jesus means when he says, Love your neighbor as yourself. There's not a boundary. There's not a nationality that's excluded. There's not a sin that's too much. There's not an ask that's too big. There's not an offense that's too painful. There's not a cut that's too deep. There's not a chasm that's too wide. There's not a heart that's too cold. It's the kind of love that God has for you. And when it's received and it's inside of you, it has nowhere to go except to take up residence and then overflow. And so people who are in your path, who are experiencing a connection with you, will naturally receive it when you are the recipient of infinite love and divine grace. God's love can't stay inside of you. Can you imagine for a moment if followers of Jesus around the country, around the globe, just became so consumed with Jesus like Mary did. Just, just consumed in his presence. Hanging on every word. Blown away by his grace. Just basking in the eternal sunlight of his love. Going where he goes. And doing what he does. Can, can you imagine... If people became so consumed with Jesus and focused less on holding people up to these man-made standards, these superficial uh, uh, traditions, and how much more this world would actually experience the love of God, even if it was secondhand, I promise you that is how the world was meant to be changed. That's how followers of Jesus were meant to be known. That's how the love of God was meant to be spread. Indeed, and in truth, in word, and in action, in conversation, and in demonstration. That's how people see God's love. That's when people start believing the gospel is in what you say is backed up by your life. God's love is in you. It's going to come out. You can't separate the two. Maybe you're here this morning. And you look at the pattern of your life. You look at the fruit of your life, your behaviors, your lifestyle, your relationships, the words, the habits you have, and, and you're having a really hard time seeing the love of God on display in your life. You'd be, you'd be really honest with yourself, and you'd be like, man, I look at the product of my life, and I'm not so sure that people are getting the sense that God loves them from my life. Could it be that you're not right with people because you've never been made right with God? And so for you, what you need to do is simply believe that Jesus died to take the punishment that your sin incurred. He died and rose again to pay the price for your sin and give you a new life so that you could be made right with God. You could receive the righteousness of God and be a recipient of God's unconditional love today. And all you need to do, the Bible says, is to believe in your heart that Jesus died and he rose again to pay the price for your sin and give you a new life and confess with your mouth that Jesus is now the Lord of your life. He's the one in control of your actions. And the Bible says you'll be saved. You'll be made right with God. 
Or, or maybe, could it be, you look at the fruit of your life and, and you realize you're not right with other people, maybe simply because you've been out of touch with Jesus who alone makes you right with God. And you're like, I'm saved. I, I've received the righteousness of God, but somehow that's not translating to the way that I interact with other people. And so for maybe for you, you need the one thing that is necessary in life, you need to get back to Jesus. And you know, maybe for you, you, you need to repent of, of, of the sin or the, the, the patterns or the thought processes that have been just pulling you away from Jesus and been distracting you from Jesus or putting you, frankly, in opposition to Jesus. And, and you need to repent of those and you need to say, Lord Jesus, please fill me with the Holy Spirit all over again. Fill me all the way up to the top so it overflows. And you need to just sit and spend some time with Jesus, hanging on every word, just soaking up his presence. And maybe some of you need to do that. I mean, this, this is honestly something you've got to do every single day. Sometimes for me, it's every hour. Maybe sometimes it's four hours at a time. But you need to get back to Jesus who alone makes you right with God, and out of that will flow a righteousness before other people. Unnatural love, unnatural love is the natural movement of the righteous. I'll close with this. You want to always be right towards everyone? Adopt the habit of viewing other people as other people who are in need of God's love and co-recipients of His mercy and then act accordingly Receive the unconditional love of God. Stay present in this relationship. And in the overflow of infinite mercy, give unnatural love to literally everyone. So don't waste your life. Run to Jesus. He will overwhelm you. And then he will overflow out of you. And in Jesus, you will change the world. Jesus, we love you. And first and foremost, we pray that that you would draw us in, draw us close. Bring us into your presence and and captivate us to the point that we never want to leave. I pray that in that love, you would move us in your love to love other people. I pray that you would change the world through us as we stay close to you. And so for those of us who are feeling convicted that we aren't right with you, I pray that you would draw us in and that you would give us the freedom of receiving the gospel. And for those of us who are right with you but just have not been living in right ways with other people, I pray that you would change us from the inside and draw us back into your loving presence. I pray that you would overflow out of us and do something special that the world is just waiting to see. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.